The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. I don't know how you are, but sometimes when I'm reading Scripture and studying, I find that I have what really I suspect are irreverent thoughts. I was working my way through the story of the resurrection once at Easter time. And as I did, I was thinking about Pilate and how when Jesus stood before him, he looked at him and said, What is truth? You will remember that he uh, appeared before King Herod, and Herod was looking for a magician, not a savior. And he thought, Good, I'm glad he came. Maybe I'll get to see him do one of his tricks. And when he was before Caiaphas, Caiaphas was the one who was supposed to be the one to identify as chief priest the Messiah when he came. But when Jesus stood before him, he was sentenced to death. I was thinking about that Easter Sunday morning when Jesus came out of the tomb. And I thought, you know, it would have been fun to have met Jesus and said, Jesus, let's go make a few personal visits. Let's start with the governor's palace and uh, go in and find Pilate. He, on Thursday night, was saying, what is truth? Let's let him see you in resurrected power and in resurrected flesh, and then let him draw his own conclusion about it. It would have been more fun to have taken the resurrected Jesus to Herod, superstitious old soul that he was, and say... uh, You want to know who this is that you've rejected? You thought he was just simply a false prophet? Pinch him now and feel him and see him now, the one that died on Friday afternoon, and see who you think he is. But it would have been most fun to take him to Caiaphas because one of the courses he took in seminary was on how to recognize the Messiah when he came. And he passed the course in seminary, but missed it when the Messiah showed up in life. But if you had asked those three men about it, they would have said, Well, if there is a God, you can count on it. He's in heaven. He's not down here. And if he's on the earth, he hardly would be in Jerusalem. And if he's in Jerusalem, you can count on it that he wouldn't show up in my court. But that's exactly what happened. God came to each one of them, and not one of them knew that God, the Lord God, had been to visit him. Now, my question this afternoon is, how active is God actually in your life and mine? How active is God actually in the world about us? You know, there are some people who do not believe that he is active at all. At least all of their lives seem to indicate that. I watched for many years Walter Cronkite report the news each evening. He told about every major event that happened around the world. And he told about every major personal actor that took any part in any major event that happened around the world. But you know, I do not remember ever a reference to the Almighty God or even to the divine providence. He reported human history for a generation as if there were no God, 
or if there were a God, he certainly had nothing to do with the daily news. It would be interesting to be in the judgment when Walter appears, won't it? There are some people, though, who believe that God is active in life. I listen to some people, and I think they think that God does everything by a special push-button procedure. Anything that happens, they say, that's God. Maybe good, maybe bad. Now, uh, I believe that God is the sovereign cause of all things, and I do not question when the prophet says in the Old Testament, is evil in the city who has done it? God has done it. He is the first cause, the original cause of all things. But you know, I have some sympathy for that farmer who worked for years to get an old run-down farm into the kind of shape he wanted it to be in, and he finally got it to where it was what he wanted it to be, and it was a showpiece for all the farms in that area. And one day somebody turned to him and said, You and the Lord certainly know how to farm, don't you? He said, I had the temptation to look back and say, Well, you should have seen it when he had it by himself. Now, I'm fully aware that God is involved in everything, but there's sometimes when he leaves it to natural processes to take care of us and to take care of history itself. But, you know, I believe there are times when God, not in regular, normal routines, but in special ways, acts in a specially significant manner to accomplish a special and a significant purpose. And when those moments come along, the person who is spiritually sensitive will say, this moment is different from some other moments. This moment has a potential in it that some other moments didn't have. This moment has a potential in it that means that I cannot treat this moment as an ordinary moment. It has divine and maybe eternal potential in it. I must, with God's help and with God's grace, seize it and let God do in this moment what he wants to do. I have been interested and found what I believe has been some help for me in this in the book of Jonah. I have read it many times, just as I'm sure you have. I remember in the early days of my life, I grew up in the days of the great conflict between the fundamentalists and the modernists, and the question about Jonah was really the, the big thing in Jonah was the question of the fish. And we thought it was the prophet in the fish that really was there. But I remember once when I got some of that behind me, I sat down with the book of Jonah and really began to look at it. Do you know I was a bit surprised to find that the major actor in the book of Jonah was not the fish, nor was it the prophet, but the real actor, the protagonist in the book of Jonah, was none other than the Lord himself. Do you remember the way uh, the uh, book develops? Let me give you a brief run through the book. Do you know where it all started? It didn't start in Nineveh, and it didn't start in Israel with the prophet. It started in heaven in the very heart of God. And that's where everything significant, eternally significant, starts. So if you want to know the beginning of the story of Jonah, you have to go and look into the heart of God as he looks down at his world and sees a massive city that has 
thousands upon thousands of people in it, none of whom know the true God, all of whom are walking in spiritual darkness and living in their bondage and in their sin. In fact, you will remember the close of the book of Jonah says that there were 120,000 in the city who couldn't tell their right hand from their left. The scholars indicate that that may well be speaking about how many children, small children, there were in the city. If that's so, it may have been a city of, certainly a city of hundreds of thousands and perhaps a million people. And God looked down at that city and his heart was moved with great compassion. Now that's the first thing in the book. The second thing is, when his compassion, he decided to act. Here is a city that needs to be redeemed. How does he go about it? He reached down and laid his hand on one sort of miserable piece of human flesh like some of the rest of us. And he said, Jonah, I want you, I want to put a burden on you, and I want you to do something about Nineveh. Now the text says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. God puts a burden on the heart of a single individual and says, You are responsible for carrying this word to them. Now, I don't know what Jonah's spiritual state was, and I notice that sometimes God does not depend for this kind of thing on a person's spiritual state. We have at Asbury a person who is on our faculty who has served in a number of roles at Asbury. He has preached here, William Coker. Dr. Coker has told me a number of times about his conversion, and every time he's told me about his conversion, he says, it came some long time after God had called me to preach. He said, I didn't know a thing about grace, but God said to me, I want you, I want you to work for me, I want you to preach the gospel. So God acted and seized Jonah and said, I want you to be my prophet. Now you remember Jonah's reaction. He didn't like God's idea, and so he said, Nineveh, that's not where I want to go, and so he started in the other direction. You know how he took his boat and started toward Tarshish. God looked down upon the prophet that was running from him, and so God acted the third thing. The scripture says, And the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Now, the Lord did not make the storm. He, he, he started the wind that produced the storm. And that storm became so great that these hardened sailors, professional sailors, felt that they were about to perish. And so they said, what did we do wrong? Isn't it interesting how we instinctively know that when we get in trouble, the chances are we deserve it. And so they said, what did we do wrong? And they began to talk to each other and They uh, said, somebody's at fault, and so they cast lots, and you will remember the lot fell upon Jonah. And so, with some reluctance, 
They cast him after he had told them who he was and what he was doing, how he was running from the face of the Lord. They took him and cast him into the sea. Now you will remember that God acted again. I love the text here. I have the privilege of reading it in Hebrew. What it literally says is, And Yahweh appointed a fish. Now, I'm a Methodist preacher, so I understand something about appointments. You know, it's something that occurs annually in a Methodist preacher's life. It's something that isn't in your hands at all. It's in somebody else's hands. And they make the decision, and you go and they say, We have an appointment for you. And then you go because of that appointment. Now, God in heaven looked down and uh, picked out a great sea creature and appointed him as his help to deal with his problem. The prophet now is being cast into the sea, and the Lord takes a great sea creature, and that great sea creature swallows the prophet, and there the prophet is. Now, you will remember that caused Jonah to do some serious thinking. He says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me from the depths of the, of the pit, from the depths of the grave. I call for help, and Lord, you listen to my cry. Now we have a penitent prophet on our hands. We have a different situation, and God's circumstances have changed. And so at that point, God speaks, God acts again, and what he does is he gives a command to that sea creature that he has appointed. And he says to him, I want you to spit that backslidden that, it, that prophet who now is penitent, I want you to spit him up on dry land. And so he does. And when the prophet finds himself with a second chance, it's interesting, God doesn't let him off of the first hook. He says to him, now I have come to you a second time, and I want you to go, and I want you to preach my word to the city of Nineveh. This time you will remember, and I suspect any of us probably so chastened would be ready to obey, he went to the city of Nineveh and began to preach. I don't need to draw out for you the details of that story because you know it extremely well. He started into that city. It took him three days to cross it. And as he went through the city, he preached repentance that God was going to come in judgment upon them because of their sin God didn't appreciate their evil, wicked ways, and he was going to deal with them because of it. And so as he did, the word in those three days spread through the city. It came to the court of the king. The emperor heard that word and said, he's dead right. He put on sackcloth and repented, and the whole city turned in penitence to the Lord, the God of Jonah. And when that city repented... God did exactly what Jonah thought he would do. You see, it was God who started this whole business so he could save that city. And now he turns from his anger and his wrath and in great compassion looks upon the city with mercy and with grace. And when he does exactly what he wanted to do, Jonah, the prophet, is unhappy is almost as unhappy as he was when God called Jonah in the beginning to go to Nineveh. So he goes outside of the city and sits down and begins to sulk. 
Now, it's a tough time in that kind of country, in that kind of climate, in that time of year, and it was very hot. And so he looked around for some kind of shelter. And the Lord looked down at his sulking prophet, and he said, poor guy. It's interesting how the Lord has pity on us even when we are wrong in our attitudes and when we are wrong in our obedience. And so the Lord, and the Hebrew text says, he appointed a vine. I like that. You can almost turn the book of Jonah on those passages, four passages where the text says, and Yahweh appointed. He appointed a fish and now he appoints a vine. The vine springs up, it's a quick-growing plant, and very quickly it provides some shelter and some protection from the sun and from some of its heat for the prophet, and Jonah is very relieved and very happy. But God has a way of getting his lessons across. So we find that it's he who acts again. The prophet is just sitting there. The city has repented, but God isn't through. And so he appoints a worm, and that worm comes, and it eats away at the root of that vine, and that vine begins to wither, and then God appoints a scorching desert wind. And that great scorching desert wind came moving in hour after hour across Jonah and the plant that had grown, the vine that had grown to uh, give him some shelter, and it wilts away, withers away, and Jonah is complaining again. He says, what a pity for that vine that it should have to suffer like that. And God looks at the prophet and says, you have compassion on a vine, and yet you're unhappy when I have compassion on a great, massive city like this. And in those closing verses of Jonah 4, God begins to speak his message to Jonah about his compassion on lost men who are in need of redemption. Now, as you go through the, the book, you will find it's very clear. The major actor is not the prophet, and the major actor is not the fish. The major actor in all of this is the Lord God. You can't see him. You can't touch him. You can't even prove to your pagan friend that he's the one that started the wind, that he's the one that appointed the fish. You can't even prove that he's the one that appointed the vine. You can't prove that he's the one that appointed the worm. Can you imagine what a secularist would do if you looked at him and say, God in his heaven, in his sovereignty, appointed that worm? And there's a worm down there that's in greater obedience to God than the prophet who's sitting in the shelter of the, of the plant. But that's what the text says. God appointed all of these, and then, a, then he appointed that scorching desert wind that came and destroyed the vine and took away the prophet's shade. Now, it's a great text. It's a great passage to show the sovereignty of God, and yet at the same time that it shows the sovereignty of God, it shows the problem that God has with our world. Where do you see his sovereignty? It's interesting he rules on the sea, 
because he's the one who starts the wind that develops the storm that makes it dangerous for those men to be out there. He controls on the sea. You will notice that he not only controls on the sea, he's in full control under the sea. He can look at a great sea creature and appoint it, and it goes and swallows the prophet that has been cast into the sea. So there he rules, on water and below it. And then you find the prophet looking for shade. He's the one that appoints the vine. And so he controls what is under the ground, under the earth, and what is above it. That vine appears, then that worm underneath bite eats away, and then above comes that great desert wind that scorches and scorches and scorches. It's a magnificent picture of the sovereign control of the Lord God over all of his creation, except significant he doesn't have any problem with the wind, and he doesn't have any problem with the fish, and he doesn't have any problem with the vine, and he doesn't have any problem with the worm, he doesn't have any problem with the desert Sirocco, the desert wind. It's simply that prophet sitting under the vine that gives him his trouble. Isn't it interesting? There's only one place in all of creation where he does not reign. And that's in places like your heart and mine. And God says, they need to let me reign there because it's only when I reign there that they can be redeemed. As you know, I'm an old Hebrew teacher. And you've been very patient with me in other years when I uh, labor something that probably doesn't mean a thing to you. But I was fascinated reading the prayer of Jonah in Hebrew. He speaks about, he, as Jonah prays, he recognizes who the Lord God is. And he recognizes that it is the Lord God that has, de that has delivered him, saved him. And he recognizes that the Lord God wants to save all men. And what is it that he wants to save them from? He wants to save them from what my text says, those who cling to worthless idols. Now, I looked at the words, the term in Hebrew for the worthless idols. And it's a word which it has, it's an expression that has two terms in it. The first of these terms is a word, hevel, which is used in Ecclesiastes. It is that word which is translated again and again in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the prophet. And what the Hebrew says is hevel, hevelim, vanity of vanities, hevel is a vanity, it is an emptiness. It is something that appears to be something, but when you go, there is nothing there. It is an emptiness. It is a delusion. And so the prophet says, Now I see that all of these people in Nineveh are basing their hopes on something that they think is there, but when the time comes and they have great need, they will find they've based their hope on something that is non-existent. It is empty and barren. Now, the first word in that phrase is not the word 
Hevel, but it are, it, the second word is not the word Hevel, it is a word Shava, which is, comes in Hebrew in two ways, Shav and Shava. Now, uh, I used to teach Hebrew grammar, and it was interesting. You know, in Hebrew there are no vowels, everything's consonant. And so as the years passed, people said, how do you pronounce this crazy stuff? And so they began to put little spots in, dots in, to the Hebrew text to give some indication. And so, if you get two dots underneath a letter, that means that it's a long E. If you get a, a short one single dot under it, that means it's an I. If you, there's just, you're not sure if there's anything there, you put two dots this way, and they call it a Shava. You know what it is? Do you know how to word, spell the word athletics? It is exactly the E that you have between the TH and the L in athletics. You know, I, that's one of the words. I remember that because I had trouble spelling it when I was in school. And they had to work with me to get me to be able to spell athletics because I listened and I knew how they pronounced it. They said A-T-H-E-A-T-H-L-E-T-I-C-S, athletics. But if you look up the word, you will find that it is correctly spelled A-T-H-L, and there's no vowel between that T-H and the L. But you see, to pronounce a T-H, you have to open up your throat. And as you open up your throat and say th, you get the feeling and you get the hearing that there is a, a vowel in there, and so we say athletics. But the reality is that the word is athletics. And what the prophet says is, what I know now is, that the hopes of that great pagan city are as non-existent as that vowel after th in athletics. Make a big fuss about it, and you think it may be there. But when you go look, it's simply an emptiness, a vacuity, it is a futility, it is not there. Now you look at all the people that are around you and me. Their lives are based on something that has no reality to it. Their hopes are based on something that is delusory and illusory. And God says, you know what the ultimate reality is. And that ultimate reality is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Savior, and His Spirit, our Sanctifier. This is the ultimate reality in the world about us. Does not know that, and it is our business to let them know. And so it is that kind of compassion in the heart of God that came to the prophet and said, I want to do something about a world that's lost and without me. Now, do you notice how he worked? It wasn't every day, and it wasn't in the same way. There was a day when he came to Jonah and said, Jonah, this is what I want you to do. And then Jonah had to live with that moment of call. He didn't like it, and so he fled found himself at sea, and then found himself cast into the sea. And there was that moment of crisis when God appointed a great fish. Divine special act, he appointed a great fish. 
And so the prophet had a chance for deliverance. And with that chance for repentance, he repented. And when he repented, God acted. And in that moment of acting, the prophet got a second chance. The great sea creature vomited him up upon the dry land. And then there was that second moment of call, that moment when God came. And the prophet knew it. He couldn't challenge it. God called him by name and said, Jonah, this is what I want you to do. And out of that moment, that second moment of call, Jonah went. Then there was that period of success and then of sulking. And God acted. And in that moment, it was several moments that came together. There was the vine, and then there was the worm, and then there was the scorching wind. And in that succession of the acts on the part of God, God began to explain his infinite compassion to the heart of his prophet. And you know, I believe that's the way he works in most of our lives. There's never a day when he isn't there. And there's never a moment when he's not available to you and me. But there's some moments that are laden with potential, that it makes them different from other moments. I'm sure that God was as real before I was saved as he was afterward. He didn't become real when I was saved. He was as available when I sat in those church services he was as available when I was baptized and when I was taken into the church, when I took those church vows. He was as available, I am sure, as he was in that moment when Mother Clark looked at me and said, Dennis, wouldn't you like to be a Christian? But I want to say there was something in that moment when Mother Clark looked at me that for me had never been present in any of those church services that went before. And if that moment had been lost, I hate to think what the next year would have been and maybe what the next years would have been. Like he did with Jonah, would have given me a second chance. Another moment when he came and spoke, but you cannot presume upon God in that. We have no control over that. And the text is very clear if we read the Scriptures that we are to seek Him when He may be found. Now, if I understand the language, that means that there are moments when He can be found. It doesn't mean that He is not present always, all the time, available, but there is something about our moments that in many moments we cannot call. But there are those moments when His grace comes. We speak of it as prevenient grace. When His grace comes and it is possible for me to respond to His holy presence and respond to His divine invitation. When that moment comes, it needs desperately to be seen. Now that's the reason we value so much our camp meetings. That's the reason for the importance of revival. That's the reason for the, for the importance of spiritual retreats and Emmaus walk experiences or whatever it is where you can get God present in grace in such a way 
that a person can do what he can't do on other days. God comes in enablement in some moments, and in those moments of enablement, we need to grasp on to Him and let Him do what He wants to do. And so during these days of this camp meeting, these may be special moments for you. I am absolutely sure that there are people who will walk on these grounds this week. There are people who will sit in this tabernacle this week for whom these moments are as special and as full of divine potential as that moment when God spoke to Jonah and called him to follow him. What a precious thing it is when we recognize them. They're those moments of divine call. And one of the things that we who are older ought to be praying is that these days on this campground, that God will lay his hand upon some young people, fellas, girls, uh, lay his hand upon them and speak in their hearts in such a way that they can never get away from it. And the rest of their days, they will know that they are under divine call divine appointment. They may be like the prophet and run, or they may be like the fish and go, but let's pray. They'll be more like the fish than they are like the prophet. God needs people who'll hear his voice and respond. It may be that these days are days for a special new step in your life. There'll be somebody here, perhaps, who'll hear Jimmy Lentz preaching. Say, you know, I really haven't been faithful in my giving to God, and I need to really start being clean in my tithing. And a whole new world will open up. Or it may be that as you sit here, God will speak and say, you really have never taken seriously your responsibility for world evangelism, your part in it. Maybe giving, it may be intercessory prayer. It may be something else. It may be the laying of your son or your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter on the altar of God and saying, God, I give you my flesh and blood the way you, the Father, gave your son for me. I give my flesh and blood back to you that a world that is without God might be redeemed. Now, there, we need to be sensitive. We need to have him say, Lord, take that sliver out of my eye so I can see when you're there. And take that one out of my heart so I'm not insensitive. And when your holy prison comes, I'm not like a pilot who washed his hands and went to bed and never knew that he'd been in the presence of the second person of the blessed Holy Trinity. Or a Herod who thought he had seen a divine, a sort of a, a, a religious P.T. Barnum when he had been in the presence of the Holy One of Israel and a Caiaphas who thought he had been in the presence of a false prophet and he had been in the presence of the One for whom all of Israel and all of mankind and all of nature awaited. Now... During these days he will come. What will you do with him? May God help us to be sensitive. And when he speaks, 
Let's let these sacred holy moments accomplish what God gives them to us for. It's amazing what happens in a moment. I had the privilege of knowing E. Stanley Jones just a little, only because of my relationship with Asbury College. It was a priceless privilege just to know him just a little. But uh, I remember I was sitting next to him at a banquet in Dallas, Texas, and I said, Dr. Jones, they tell me there is a bust of you available, a statue that might be available. I said, we'd love to have some perpetual reminder of you on Asbury's campus. He said, oh? I said, really, there are two. I gave one to my daughter. She uses it for a doorstop. I don't know why I shouldn't give the other one to you. I told his daughter that. She was the wife of Bishop Matthews. And she said, the rascal. The kids were playing and were so vigorous, I was afraid they were going to knock it off its pedestal and break it. So I set it down and in he walked and he caught me. But do you know what happened in his life? Henry Clay Morrison, who preached on this platform so many times, preached in his church. An orphan boy, and he laid his hands on E. Stanley Jones and said, Son, you need to give your life for ministry and you need to come to Asbury College. E. Stanley Jones said that moment was loaded with eternal significance. One of the great preachers of the gospel that I heard who had part in Henry Clay Morrison's funeral, I heard him say, I was a green kid sitting on a piano bench in a little country Methodist church during revival. The aftermath of the altar service was going on. And he said, I was sitting there swinging my legs, little kid on the piano bench. And Henry Clay Morrison came along and laid his hands on his head and said, Son, God wants you to preach. And he said, You know, that moment, something happened. Life was never the same again. That was old Bishop UVW Darlington who spoke at Henry Clay Morrison's funeral. He himself was in a revival meeting, and when Morrison died... He left his revival meeting in, in Alabama in those days when travel was so difficult and walked in late to Henry Clay Morrison's funeral service, walked straight to the platform to take his part and pay his tribute to the man who was a part of a moment that had eternal significance in it. I guess that's the reason that when I, when I really think about it, preaching becomes... And, and services like this become exciting and significant because you never know the potential in a moment in the presence of God. You never know the potential in a moment in the preaching of the Word of God. May God help us that we don't miss what He wants to do and say in these moments that we have together. If you want to learn more about Titus Women, visit us online at TitusWomen.org.